Hi, everybody. Welcome to the July 26, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Jefferson County School District making the decision to not tear down and rebuild Columbine High School. The district superintendent, Jason Glass, said there is not enough support to move forward with the idea. Patty Cahoon from Westward, it seems that the district got this one right. What do you think? Well, they would have gotten it righter if they had listened to us the day that the proposal came out. Saved a lot of money, saved a lot of time. Clearly, the solution is not 20 years later to knock down a building, keep the name, but their plan to instead have more security so those looky-loos stay away. That makes a lot more sense. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You've brought up the idea of a large fence or a wall kind of surrounding the property and make it a little bit more private. Uh, have you heard other proposals like that in the news this week? Well, the news talked about uh, securing the perimeter better and, and, as Patty said, having more security. Not, not necessarily uh, a, a giant Trump wall to keep out the undesirables and, and the truly de- and deplorable people who come just to, to gawk for their own sick reasons. Uh, but for once, this is a situation where public officials did the right thing by not uh, instantly implementing something that the CIO panel unanimously agreed with, because it, it, the people who really matter in this decision are are the community. And so they, they took the time to really hear from the community and found there, there wasn't the support for that. Ian Silveri joins us, Executive Director at Progress Now Colorado and also Denver Post columnist. It's great to have you back on the panel. Uh, Ian, uh, it looks like the district made the right call on this one. Are there other steps that should be taking uh, now that they've gone through at least the community input to protect the students at Columbine? It's a good question. I think the reason why they came to the right conclusion was because they did listen to the community, so I think continuing those conversations is important. As a Jefferson County resident myself, I'm, I'm glad they came to that conclusion, and I hope that we continue having those conversations so we can figure out what we can do to, you know, secure the area, but without turning it into some kind of, like, weird prison or police state. Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor 5280, rounds out the panel. Uh, if the district got this right and they're, they're looking to do more things for the students at Columbine, uh, is it over? Is there a kind of a, a sigh of relief or basically there's a recognition that it's probably not going to go away anytime soon? I don't think it's over. Unfortunately for that community and for the families affected for it by it, it can never be over. Um, I do think it was a good question to ask, and I think they did it in a smart way um, to the community. It was interesting that they did it at the 20th anniversary as well, because I think it, it gives them a little bit of breathing room to maybe stop some of these conversations in the very near future. Um, what I will say with, with a fair amount of certainty is that this is going to continue to come up again and again. Um, at one point, I wonder if it'll move into more of a question of this is an aging building, how do, how do we repair it? And there were already some questions about that as well, too, because eventually you do have to replace school buildings. According to a new statewide poll conducted by Magellan Strategies, 45% of voters believe Governor Jared Polis and the Democratic-controlled legislature went too far this year's session. However, 47% of voters don't actually want to recall Polis or any state lawmakers either. 38% said they should, that they would support a recall, and 15% said they were unsure. Petty, uh, Magellan Strategies is used by a lot of Republicans. It's known as uh, a conservative polling firm. So taking all these with a grain of salt, it still looks like uh, a, a pretty bad news for folks who are looking for recalls. Uh, but what do you think? Well, if 45% think they went too far, that means 55% 
don't think they went too far, and that's the more significant thing. I think the fact that Polis is polling as well as he is right now, uh, the fact that people ha- aren't screaming in the street shows he's doing pretty well in his first 100 days as governor, or the first six months now as governor. Uh, the recall movement would be really tough for the governor, even if Polis weren't polling as well as he is. Just the number of signatures, really, really hard. And the two legislators that have so far been targeted are just the not, not the right people to target. It is not going to be like 2013 all over again. It is not shooting fish in a barrel. If I can use the CSU inappropriate comment. (laughs) Very good. The the CSU word police will be there on hold. And in 2013, of course, guns was one of the big issues, just as it is again. David, uh, do you think that this is going to serve as a warning or a helpful analysis or anything helpful for the folks who are on the the various competing recall efforts for Governor Polis and the other recall efforts that are currently within the Republican Party? No, I think there's a quixotic element to this and, and a feeling of we got to do something, you know, we, uh, as uh, John Belushi said in Animal House, this is something that really calls for a, a large, stupid, futile gesture. <laughs> Um, it, it is interesting that 26% of Democrats think the legislature uh, went too far last session. Um, Polis' uh, approval rating is a plus 12, uh, 30, 49% approve, 37% don't. And on the question of uh, are things in Colorado on the right track, 44% said yes and 41% said no. That's reminds me of Trump in the sense that that's a pretty narrow split on right track, wrong track compared to taking into account how well the economy is doing. And your wife, uh, State Senator Brittany Pedersen, is involved in one of these recall efforts. So when you and she saw these different results, uh, what did both of you think? Well, she's certainly not involved in them by choice. Um, (laughs) This is her vanquished opponent from 2016, uh, Nancy Pelosi, trying to have a do-over of a race that Brittany beat her by 19 points during. So we thought that was pretty strange. Um, Brittany also won the Senate race by 16 points just six months ago, or eight months ago, I guess. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this isn't surprising to us. There's no enthusiasm for these recalls. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, A few weeks ago, um, they kicked off some canvases for the Colorado Way of Life group that's helping fight these recalls, and there were about 100 people that showed up to a parking lot in... uh, around the corner from where we live in Lakewood to go knock doors for Brittany. Um, these people wouldn't have been going around Lakewood talking about how great Senator Pedersen is if there weren't this recall up. Indeed, we found the one recaller sitting at a table all by herself outside of a church in the wrong district trying to collect signatures to recall my wife. So we don't think there's any brain surgeons doing you know, the recall work here, and we're pretty confident that the community supports her, and she's going to continue to serve and do everything she said she was going to do, which is all she did last session. Natasha, the folks that are at least looking to recall Governor Polis are already facing an enormous <laughs> task. To, uh, and I think it's something around, it's over 600,000 signatures they would need mm-hmm. to get by September 6th if I'm in the ballpark. Uh, I got to believe that this, they've already seen an uh, editorial from the Denver Post saying to the public, don't sign these recall efforts. And now this is public. Uh, a, a, a difficult task just became even more difficult do you think there's any sign of surrender, or will it truly just be tilting at windmills until the 6th of September? 
Oh, that's a long time from now. So, but it is a lot of signatures to collect. So, um, it really depends on their their interest in pursuing this, and they have every right to continue to pursue it. And people have every right to sign or not to sign that petition. Um, I think one of the interesting things that I noticed in that poll, um, and just sort of looking forward to what what it tells us, is is the influence of unaffiliated voters. Now, anyone who's followed politics in Colorado for a long time has known the unaffiliated vote continues to grow, but they're acti- actually factoring a bigger turnout for those voters. So what's interesting as I look at those poll results and sort of look towards 2020 and beyond is that this issue of, of where people stand in Colorado and what we can assume based on their party uh, affiliation or not in this case um, continues to be very much up in the air and will continue to make our politics interesting, whether these recall, recall petitions go through or not. Colorado Congressman Ken Buck became a highlight of the Robert Mueller hearing before the House Judiciary Committee this week. When Buck asked if Mueller believed he could charge the president with the crime after he left office, Mueller answered yes and confirmed it after Buck's second question. David, uh, it it seems that the actual results of the hearings are going to be uh, mixed at best. People who already disagreed with President Trump saw it as confirmation. People who agree with President Trump saw it as uh, terrible for Robert Mueller. Does this highlight live on for Ken Buck, or does it go away quickly? I think I don't think it lives on. It's just a, it's a confirmation of what the the state of the law uh, at the Department of Justice has been for a long time. The question was, you could charge the President of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office, and Mueller says yes. That is legally speaking the correct answer. The, at the Department of Justice, there's something called the Office of Legal Counsel, which is a, a very elite unit and somewhat insulated from the uh, part, partisan vicissitudes uh, of the department of as, as a whole. And OLC formal opinions are binding on the entire Department of Justice, including Robert Mueller, who was in his role was, was part of the Department of Justice. Since the Nixon administration, the OLC has had the opinion that you can't indict you cannot indict a sitting president, uh, partly because of the, the separation of powers. And, but, of course, after Trump left, he wouldn't be a sitting president anymore. And so, of, of course, he could be indicted. That's the correct legal thing to say. Uh, this got spun as Mueller saying, oh, we have enough evidence that, you know, I personally would decide to bring a case, you know, if I had the opportunity. He later testified before House Judiciary in the morning and House Intelligence in the afternoon, and he began his House Intelligence uh, testimony by saying, as we say in the report, and as I said in the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed a crime. Obviously, there is, in the Mueller report, there is evidence that some people would say is stuff that people would say is evidence of a crime. So sure, could a prosecutor decide to do it? Yes. Did Mueller say that he had decided it should be done? No. And despite a uh, Colorado congressman making a pretty big highlight of the hearings, are there, is there going to be any local impact from the Mueller hearings? Not only a Colorado congressman, but also the chairman of the state party. This is the problem when you don't have very much talent left on the bench, is you have people doing multiple jobs, which end up affecting each other politically, right? So this gaffe that Buck makes during this hearing, whether you like it or not, it dominated the headlines coming out of this as a result. And, you know, the, the truth is, later on in this hearing, Mueller was asked two very important questions that hadn't gotten onto the record yet. The first one by Adam Schiff, the first one, Congressman from California. The first one was, did the Trump campaign invite and welcome 
interference and participation by the Russians to help him get elected? He said, Mueller said yes. Did they lie and try and cover it up? He said yes. Now you have everything you need to bring an obstruction case. I think Dave's right. The, the law, or the rule rather, on the book says you cannot indict a sitting president. Mueller confirmed that twice to Ken Buck. All those things in combination, however, give a prosecutor, I think, all they need to bring a charge once Trump is out of office. The question is, will there be political will to do so? Will there be an airtight enough legal case to do so? And I think that's up to future prosecutors and depends on what happens in the 2020 election, quite frankly. Natasha, in a previous political era, not that long ago, Mm. uh, something as dramatic as congressional hearings and all these different kind of reports and comments from local congressmen would seem to have some staying power. I am not convinced that staying power, the expiration date on uh, anger or shock or any sort of reaction from something federally uh, seems to be dramatically short right now. Maybe I'm being cynical. What do you think? There's definitely a new normal for for everyone in sort of the consumption of this type of news. But I think within that, too, there's there's this idea now that these congressional hearings should be must-see TV, that there needs to be the soundbite, that the person who's testifying is supposed to be this straight-out-of-central-casting perfect witness who says everything with the inflection and tone that they want. We didn't get that this week because that's not typically how these hearings go. And particularly in this case, he was being very careful about saying what he could and couldn't say and doing it in a lawyerly way. And anyone who's read a deposition, anyone who sat in a court hearing, anyone who sat on a jury knows how long it takes to set up the framework for those sort of questions to get to real answers. And also probably knew that we weren't going to get a lot of those opinion question answers from him um, this week. So to me, I have some concerns about the media coverage because there were a lot of seven takeaways, five takeaways, ten takeaways. Here's the short clip. We're going to watch ten seconds of hours of congressional hearings and make judgments about it. And I think we're missing the point that sometimes the impact, the grandeur of the moment, the, the importance of the moment is, is, is best spent by taking some time and really thinking about it. And we, we just aren't as interested in that, it seems, right now. Patty, did anything really change after the Mueller hearings this week? Well, I would hope the one thing that changed is that people remember the Russians really did interfere and we have an election coming up again. And there's no evidence that we have the controls in place that won't allow the Russians to interfere again. Otherwise, to use another inappropriate term, it's like the blind men and the elephant. Anyone who watched this, everyone came away with a different impression. Who was the biggest blowhard? I have to say Mueller really wasn't a blowhard because he didn't say enough to be a blowhard. He was very circumspect in what he said. But all the posturing with the people in their questions. That's the takeaway, depending on what framework you're watching from, what's, what party you're watching from, what ge- geography you're watching from. And people will remember what Ken Buck said in this state. A group of community members is seeking to designate Tom's Diner in Denver as an historical landmark against the wishes of its owner, Tom Messina. Messina has said he has plans to sell the property for $4.8 million to a developer who wants to build an eight-story apartment building. If the Denver City Council approves the landmark designation, Messina's plans will need to change. Uh, Ian, what's your uh, stance on this issue? This is a a particular thing about Colorado and Denver growth right now and its history and apartment buildings and everything else. There's everything to choose from here. What's your take? Well, as a Lakewood resident whose um, voters just decided to side with the Flat Earth Society on growth and pass a very stupid 1% growth cap in our city, um, I've got sympathy um, for the folks in Denver. However, as a former Denver resident and a fan of Tom's Diner, I lived on 16th and Logan when I went to the Capitol and used to go there every Sunday, eat breakfast, and do a crossword puzzle. And I love that place. This guy 
built a business that is now worth something in the location that he built, and I think he should be able to sell the building to whoever he wants and do whatever he wants with it. I mean, it's kind of odd that the government would force somebody to hold on to something they're not done with. What they do with the building afterwards, I think, is, is part of the question, too. And I just hope it goes toward at least some affordable housing because it's such a need in the city right now. But I, I'm, I'm not like one of these weird NIMBY liberals who wants to stop all growth from happening. People want to move here. They're moving here in droves. I think it's a great thing. We need to make sure we have the housing stock um, for them. And I also just find it very odd that people would want to force someone who wants to sell the business they spent their life building to have to hang on to it for you know, reasons that they seem to have, but he doesn't. It's very odd. Natasha, it's easy to see both sides of this. I think if you've been there before, like Ian has, it's a cool place. It's a, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Pulp Fiction for my generation, but it's a pretty cool place. Uh, but then on the other hand, if a bunch of people who weren't related to me came and told me what I could or couldn't do with my house, that was going to completely change my future retirement plans, what I was going to do with my resources, that would really tick me off. Uh, where are you at on this, and where do you th- how do you think the Denver City Council is going to vote? <laughs> Uh, that is a very good question because I don't know. I think one of the interesting things um, about conversations we've had about at this table, but around the city in general, around gentrification and growth, is the conversation continues to change. It never feels like, oh, we've already addressed this. We know how to handle this situation. It keeps on transforming. Um, and not surprisingly, it would it would tr- be the conversation would continue along the Colfax Corridor. I mean, not only Tom's Diner, but I, I love driving up and down that street. Ever since I've moved to Denver, it is a place I like to do. I like to just go up and down the entire length at least once a year to see what has changed because it really is an example of how much is happening in the city on any any given day um, and whether whether or not it becomes a, a building that is historically preserved or not I think it is going to open more conversations um, that will build on the conversations that are already happening uh, and, and if I could predict what the council will do especially with new members on it we don't really have a, a track record for many of these council members to know how they might vote on this issue we can take a guess for some of them, but I think it'll be a very interesting conversation. Patty, you wrote about this for Westward. Uh, what are the details that we need to know about this issue? Well, so Tom's Diner, it was a circus 1967, kind of Jetson-looking um, kind of architecture known as Googie. It's California coffee shop architecture. It's not the only one example in Denver. You've got Bastions. You've got the Denver Diner. There are others out there. And it's so, but the Landmark Commission voted unanimously on this recommendation, both for history and the architecture and where it is geographically. But they don't take into account what the owner wants. And what the owner wants is to reap the benefits of his 20 plus years of hard work in a building that was never, was not considered historic when he bought it. And although it could qualify nationally, the national registration is not as um, draconian as Denver's would be. So I think it is going to be a real flashpoint when it comes before city council. They're going to have to make a tough decision, which is, do you save old Denver? Do you save with the rights of a property owner? David, speaking of the city council, five new members. Uh, also, I'm not sure if we know exactly what the other members are going to do. How do you think this uh, all comes out? Um, I don't know, but I think Ian said it very well, and this is really just a form of theft. Uh, if, if, you, if there's some building that some people in the community, five, five NIMBY neighbors, and by the way, Tom and his family are just as much part of the community as, as these selfish people are. If you don't like it, if you want to keep some building the way it is, go buy it for a fair market price or convince the, the city council to spend $4.8 million to buy this building. Don't take away 
the guy's major resource that he built uh, and that the city council and the planning commission and the, the selfish neighbors didn't build. This, in a city where we are so crunched for housing, this is affordable housing, whatever the apartment building is, because it increases the supply um, and th thereby helps lower the price. And what the Planning Commission and the, the Selfish Gang of Five have done is send a signal to every architect building in the city now and in the future, don't do anything interesting. Make it bland. Use these cookie-cutter condos as your model so that nobody in the future will ever be able to claim that your interesting building uh, can get confiscated by the government. And for all those folks that thought this society was just hopelessly polarized, we've never been this far apart, here we are at the Colorado Inside Out table, Ian Silveri, David Copel, on the exact same page. You are welcome, Colorado. Right. Have faith that we can come together. <laughs> Let's get to our last topic. After just one week of being a part of the Bureau of Land Management Agency, William Perry Penley is now the top political official overseeing it. Penley's hiring comes just one week after the Interior Department announced plans to relocate BLM's headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction, Colorado. Uh, Natasha, uh, William Penley must have one heck of a LinkedIn page. What do you think? Well, it's, it's quite the trajectory. Um, another controversial appointment, on, and there will be lot to, lots to discuss about that. Um, I think the more interesting angle here is to say welcome to the BLM, BLM employees that are coming to Colorado. It's a great state. I think they'll, they'll enjoy it. Um, that move is, is interesting for Colorado. You know, uh, city and, and state spend a lot of time looking at economic development and how you can bring major businesses to a city or a state. In this case, we're bringing... Um, a political uh, branch. And, that, and that's interesting because it's the type of thing that could stimulate some growth in our rural communities. And what better place to have conversations about our public lands um, than in Colorado? Patty, uh, D.C.'s loss is Grand Junction's gain. I don't know how many times I'll be able to say that in my lifetime. I'm glad I have this opportunity. Uh, what do you think about the big move and William Penley's big move to the top? Well, we have to remember the big move became a lot littler after the initial announcement. It turns out only 27 jobs are going to Grand Junction. Even the Grand Junction Sentinel had to backpedal on its laudatory um, editorial. Let's not forget David Bernhard, who was the head of the Department of the Interior, who's from Rifle, was working at Brownstein Hyatt. Um, he's about to have his recusal for being involved in cases run out in August. So we're going to keep, be keeping a close eye on both Mr. Bernhard and William Perry Penley. David, uh, big decisions about the, when I think about the Bureau of Land Management, think about large tracts of land, especially out here in the West. Is it a good thing at least a few people are going to be located out here? Will that make a difference? Well, it's a good thing. Perry Penley is going to be one of them because he's eminently qualified. He was an official with the Department of Interior and under the Reagan administration, uh, then for decades head, head of the Mountain States Legal Foundation, a public interest law firm that protects the rights of farmers and ranchers and other, other property owners in the West. Um, and so he, he's superbly well qualified. Uh, some people worry, and, and he believes that BLM land and public land in general belongs to the public and is meant to be not treated like some museum, but it's, it's supposed to be used by the public. And that includes hikers and recreation and also includes hunters and, and uh, use of natural resources. Um, on his idea that he, he favors off selling the enormous amounts of federal land that are held in the West, Whatever the merits of the idea, I don't think it's going to get that far. And the reason is Donald Jr. and Eric Trump are both very avid hunters. And they're not in favor of selling off public land, which could reduce uh, hunting access. 
Ian, wrap it up for us on the big moves of the BLM. I think Patty said it pretty well. I mean, this was Cory Gardner's big moment to do a great thing, bring a huge, expensive government office with a bunch of government employees out to Colorado, and you could hear the pop of heads from Grand Junction once again. Reading the editorials that Patty um, mentioned, the first one was, um, like, this is a complete game changer for our community. It's going to be the best thing ever. The very next day, they had to walk it back, and uh, the headline for it was, BLM move, still a coup, managing all those expectations. So I I think it's kind of funny that, you know, Republicans, conservatives, Cory Gardner, decide that, like, this is their big thing to have a giant federal expenditure. It's not cheap to move an entire office, build a giant new building out there. I don't, I, I feel for the people of Grand Junction, they've been disappointed before, Jordan Cove, you know, there's other projects that are that are promised and never come to fruition. I think, unfortunately, this is another place they've been let down where 27 jobs, I mean, the majority of them are coming to Lakewood. <laughs> well, we're running out of time, so it's time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, please start us off. Men and baseball bats. No sooner do we have the plea bargain in the Lakewood brawl at the Little League game, but we also have... A, the deputy in Beth McCann's office narrowly keeping his job after a woman there said she felt threatened when he kind of swung a baseball bat. David. The Colorado State University uh, new speech guidelines, to clarify from last week, you are allowed to say the word American. So the, the rules are you can't, but you shouldn't say he or she. You should say Z instead. Or you can say her, but you have to spell it H-I-R. And when if you, somebody says, I'd prefer it if you called me Z, that's fine. But don't say I used Z's preferred pronoun because preferred pronoun is the wrong thing to say. Male or female is wrong, but man or woman is okay. Transgender is good, but transgendered is bad. And don't say that the people who wrote these guidelines are stupid. But you can say that they're uncool, which is true. Ian. <laughs> um, I might be a week off, but Team Denver Homes for their humiliating and I think off key tone deaf is a nice way to put it. Um, Fresh Prince of Bel Air parody mm-hmm. song. It's one of these things where you had eight people in the video, a camera crew, a sound crew, equipment. Somebody had to edit it, put it together, and somebody had to post it online. And nobody at any point said, I don't think this is a very good idea. This seems extremely tone deaf to me. Pretty humiliating episode, but it looks like Kent would cut them loose, and they're all going to be updating their resumes here pretty soon, and probably none as rappers. (laughs) Natasha. It's been a deadly week um, and summer for uh, Denver bicyclists, and it um, potentially could get worse. Hopefully not. Let's say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Happy birthday to Union Station, celebrating five years for its renovation. And look behind to see what kind of changes it's made in Denver. You're here. David. Wayne Knox uh, passed away this week after serving uh, 13 terms as a great liberal Democrat state representative from Denver. Among his many things in his legacy is the gavel amendment to the state constitution that reformed legislative procedures. Uh, thanks to Brittany Patterson's former opponent, Nancy Pelosi, for filing a doomed recall. My wife's getting tons of volunteers out into the district right now. <laughs> Natasha. Colorado has a new poet laureate. Fantastic. And I'll continue to say something nice. Speaking of birthdays at Union, uh, Union Station, it's also my dad's birthday tomorrow, so got to get it in there. That in there. Happy birthday, Dad. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Mm-hmm.